welcome to Stories of Scotland, a jolly podcast about Scottish history and folklore. Filled with festive cheer, I'm Annie. And sliding on down the chimney, it's me, Jenny. And welcome to our Christmas special, a happy, light-hearted exploration of ancient Yuletide traditions. I love this time of year, Annie. We've just passed the darkest day of the year, the winter solstice, and we're getting ready for our Yuletide feast, or Chrissy Chrissy Dindins, as some of us like to call it. (laughs) (laughs) And you do love your Chrissy Chrissy Dindins, Jenny. Honestly, 2020, I've been living for this Chrissy Chrissy Dindins, I'm not going to lie. You can take all the freedoms you want, Nicola Sturgeon, but you're not taking my pigs in blanket. (laughs) What are you having for your Christmas dinner, Jenny? We traditionally have a ham on Christmas Eve and then a turkey on Christmas Day Oh, with lots of Brussels sprouts. Wow, that's a proper Yuletide feast. We Mm -hmm, are mm -hmm. having a mushroom wellington, (laughs) which is less traditional, but much more vegetarian. But whether meats or veggies, Yuletide is the period of celebrations from late December to early January which the north of Scotland has celebrated for centuries. If you were celebrating Christmas in Scotland a couple of hundred years ago, you would be calling it Yule. Now, Yule traditions come from a variety of different sources, but the name Yule itself comes from the Vikings, who celebrated this time of year with huge feasts. In Old Norse, Yule means feast. They toasted the rebirth of the sun, fertility and successful harvests in the year to come. And, of course, peace. However, for centuries in Scotland, you weren't supposed to be celebrating Yule. You see, the Presbyterian Reformation of Scotland in 1560 viewed Christmas or Yule celebrations as being too strongly aligned to the Catholic faith. And for these reformers, it was an inappropriate way to celebrate their Christian faith. So it was heavily discouraged for folks to have Yule festivities. However, we can see plenty of evidence that points to people clinging to Yule traditions and refusing to give up Christmas. Well, Annie, when there's a will, there's a way. As they say in my office, you can't stop Sheila's Christmas party. She'll do anything for that secret Santa. (laughs) Well, because of this historic tension between church and tradition, Christmas is actually really quite a modern holiday for Scotland. In fact, Annie, it was only made a public holiday in 1958. I guess increased globalisation and Santa Claus meant that the walls of reformers couldn't hold Christmas back any longer. That and Sheila is also incredibly persuasive with her eggnog, (laughs) let me tell you. But let's find out about some of these sneaky, quiet Yule time and Christmas traditions which people have celebrated for centuries just quite quietly. There is nothing quiet about Sheila when she's belting Mariah Carey around the office in November. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Sheila. Jenny, I am so excited about these archives. <laughs> I know I'm always excited about the archives, but this is particularly special because we found some Christmas traditions for this episode that I've not seen anywhere else ever. Yay! <laughs> this is my present to us, Jenny, is traditions that have been lost for well over a century. 
So I find this article in the Inverness Courier in 1843 discussing old Christmas festivities. I couldn't find these traditions mentioned in any other books or articles. So it feels like we've got a really unique view into this little corner of tradition in our rough little patch of Scotland. So does this mean that if the only place this information exists in the whole world is in a really old copy of the Inverness Courier, that the traditions are sort of local to the Highlands? I certainly believe that to be the case. Okay, so for this, we're going back 177 years in time, which is fine under current regulations as we're staying within the local authority area. (laughs) That we are, Jenny. We're just going back in our little time machines inside our heads. Now, this is a really intriguing article because though frustratingly the author isn't telling us any of the names of the villages or areas that they are speaking of, we have to assume that because it was published in Inverness, it is hopefully talking about places in the Highlands, like you're saying. And this is supported by the sprinkling of Gaelic in the text, which hopefully, again, I think it means it's local to us. So let's dive in. This is one of my favourite openings ever, simply because it sounds like every grandparent that I've ever spoken to. We often hear old people whose minds are full of memories past, drawing comparisons betwixt the present day and the good old times, when George III was king. Steam engines, stagecoaches, railways, machinery, they're all objects of this supreme abhorrence. They look on them as many engines of destruction, making inroads at the rate of 20 miles an hour on all old customs. (laughs) (laughs) So what I enjoy about this is just how familiar it sounds. Apart from the bit about George III, who was king from 1760 to 1820. So this kind writer in 1843 is just thinking about their version of the good old days. The good old, 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 old days. (laughs) (laughs) And in doing that, our writer is highlighting the incredible speeds of modern technologies of their time at 20 miles an hour, Jenny. That's very slow, 20 miles an hour. (laughs) I've said it once, Annie, and I'll say it again. All the best things in life happen at under 20 miles an hour. 20 miles per hour is a Shetland pony at full throttle. And who has ever really needed to go faster than that? So true, Jenny. So true. (laughs) So let's see what our old storyteller has to say about Christmas. Look to the Christmas of a few years past. To happy, heart-stirring pleasures, the old games, sports, customs and rites peculiar to that time. There is not scarce a trace of them, except in the most primitive districts. That's us, Annie. (laughs) (laughs) Where the sturdy, old-fashioned layman clings to the customs of his fathers with a determination that shuts the door against all innovations. Yet, even there, Christmas, or Yule, is sinking into disrespect. The tones of happiness breathed upon Christmas Day for a thousand years, almost giving it an inherent buoyancy to the atmosphere that even in dreary December becomes potent and bewitching. 
Like Sheila's eggnog. <laughs> <laughs> Every village had their particular Christmas customs. In one, we remember every movable article. Carts, barrows, wood, wooden houses, and everything capable of being moved by the united force of a hundred young hands was carried to a particular spot through the night. In the morning, the scene that presented itself and the luckless owners on the outlook for their stray property was often a source of much amusement to the merry wanderers of the night as the collecting of their effects. Okay, so this is a bit of a strange custom. I love this one. (laughs) (laughs) What's happening is the village youths are going outside people's houses and anything that isn't attached to the ground, they are (laughs) borrowing and moving it to a big pile for everyone to come and collect. It sounds mischievous and, to be honest, really annoying. (laughs) (laughs) But Annie, what brings a community better together than meeting at the pile of stolen things to reclaim their wheelbarrows on Christmas morning? (laughs) Plus, 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 if you get out there early, you could pick up a last-minute present or two. anyone who didn't want their things stolen would just move them inside their homes or hide them. I'm pretty certain that I wouldn't enjoy a Christmas morning wheelbarrow hunt. Just like the olden days when the wheelbarrows roamed wild and free across the glens, pulled by Shetland ponies. (laughs) (laughs) At speeds almost up to 20 miles an hour. You've got to watch out. The, the ruggedness, though. If you hit a Shetland pony at 20 miles an hour going downhill in a glen, let me tell you, you're not seeing your next Christmas. <laughs> well, I think that the Inverness Borough Police actually formed in the 1840s, Jenny, possibly as a response to these free-range wheelbarrow-laden ponies. <laughs> Though more likely because of the, the more serious and, and less petty crimes. Well, to be honest, I do agree with you. I'm quite happy to leave festive wheelbarrow pinching <laughs> in the past, mainly because I don't actually own a wheelbarrow. Maybe we should bring it back and I can steal one this year, actually. <laughs> All right, I take it back. I take it back. I'm all for the wheelbarrow hunt. <laughs> As am I. <laughs> See, I've flipped you. Now everyone wants a wheelbarrow for Christmas. Yeah, no, Good luck getting that down the chimney, Santa. <laughs> I've just thought about how useful it will be for the garden, and now I really want a wheelbarrow for Christmas Day, Jenny. <laughs> Let's do this. Let's do this. <laughs> I can feel crime bubbling up in my belly. <laughs> That's just the eggnog. <laughs> However, the next tradition that our 1840s folklore enthusiast tells us about is really quite special. And it's because it has this amazing air of mystery to it that I really want us to use the collective power of the hive mind of anyone listening to our podcast to see if we can uncover more about it. Sacred stones seem to have been numerous in those days. One we remember, and merry was the gathering around it on Christmas Eve. This was the Clach and Groat, or Stone of the Groat, a stone that was said to have been made hollow by the knees of pilgrims and devotees. Before it must have been some shrine, the name of which even the long, tenacious grasp of tradition had been unable to withhold from oblivion. The Druid Stone, as it was also called, although its form was unlike those composing of the Druid Circles. The spot 
was well calculated to strengthen the belief that it had witnessed the mystic rites of the ancient druids. You know I love me some ancient druids, I know you do, Jenny. (laughs) But the Victorians have this really unhelpful habit of calling any historic monuments from about the Stone Age to the Late Iron Age as druid stones or druid houses or druid temples, this kind of thing. So there's a time span of multiple millennia that Clach and Grote could have covered. However, we then get this little description of the place where the stone is. A little stream ran by, and there was a flat area where lay the stone, and the bank from above, from whence issued a fine limpid fountain into a stone reservoir, were covered with scattered wood. It was a favoured resort in summer, but Christmas Eve was the period when the genius loci gave a virtue to the stone. Okay, so genius loci just means a protective spirit or deity. Incredible! Ah, oh, that's so cool! So we have this stone, the Clachan Grote, and it holds some kind of ancient significance and is guarded by some magical stone spirit. I told you stones had souls, Annie. It's the Grote Father. Top of the clock. <laughs> I wonder what type of stone it is. Do we find out? Oh, I don't think we actually find out the type of stone, but we find out mm. what people do at the Clachan Grote, which is quite special in itself, Jenny. All right. Merry groups of lads and lassies from all quarters of the parish wound their way there with music and song, each bearing some donation for the Clachan Grote. Some had a burden of wood, others barrowfuls of peat. Stolen barrowfuls of peat. (laughs) There were some game birds, some one thing, some another. Some gave money, some meal of corn or oats. Nobody who could afford it withheld their groat. Through the night there was a coming and going, and dancing and laughter and music and jollity of every kind. And on the morrow the whole was equally and honestly divided among the poor of the parish that no one within its bounds might want a Christmas dinner. Oh, that's so lovely. I, I just love the clack and groat. It fills me with such a festive warmth, Jenny. Aww. So we have this stone which is being used for charity purposes. Everyone is bringing a donation called a groat to the stone at Christmas. And all of these donations brought together are split equally amongst the folks who are in need of it. So. Do we know what groat means? Could it be like uh, John O'Groats up in the far north? That's the only time I think I've heard that. I thought this too, but this is actually part of our mystery here, Jenny. Our author doesn't tell us where Clachan Groat is, but I don't think it's in John O'Groats because mm, okay. I think the groat is just referring to the offering that's brought to the stone itself. As a groat was a small valued coin worth four pence, and then later more. I think the word groat was also used to describe something of small value. So you could say in the olden days, I don't give a groat. (laughs) Okay, we're bringing that one back. That's fantastic. (laughs) Frankly, Sheila, I don't give a groat. It's October, stop singing your songs. (laughs) 
I was also quite fascinated by this word groat. So I found another wonderful old Scots meaning of the word, which is hulled grain, probably oats or barley, which grow well in highland soil. So this is actually quite valuable in itself. I found this old proverb about groats uh, and I've got it here, if you please. (laughs) In your thickest Christmas accent, whatever that may be. Take can your vain groats in other folks' kale. That was quite good. Well done. Thank you, Jenny. <laughs> <laughs> That's my festive voice. Uh, mm-hmm. Translated from the Scots, your proverb means to know your own groats in other people's kale or cabbages, I guess. And that clears it up completely. <laughs> <laughs> well, what does it mean, Jenny? So it means that you can actually distinguish your own grains and their value, making you wily or sharp in recognising your own interests. So you're able to tell your own wealth and you don't have to trust anyone else to do that, meaning that you yourself are in control of your groats. <laughs> <laughs> that actually matches up with another proverb I found about groats, which was... <laughs> If a farm labourer was worried that there was going to be a rainy afternoon and they wouldn't be able to get all of their outside work done, then they'd say, oh, there might be a hole in my groat today. (laughs) And the groat is also a coin. So if there's a hole in your groat, you've got something valuable, but it's leaking out because you've got a rainy afternoon, so you can't get your work done. You're not going to get all your pay. That's what the Scottish Crusades were actually after, the holy groat. Okay, but I think I think what these two proverbs tell us is that a groat is not of something that is low in value, Annie, but is actually a precious thing. It's your own oats and your barley. Yes. Um, so all we really know about groats is that they are the names of the offerings to the clachan groat and all of these helpful <laughs> proverbs. <laughs> they are generous items of traditional hospitality. Food for your belly and fuel for your fire. Everything you need. And everyone in the area would be bringing some donation for the spirit of the stones to be divided amongst those in need. Their clach and groat would have been offering practical support for folks who needed a bit of help in the middle of winter. But what I'm really fascinated by, Jenny, is where is the clach and groat? Mm. I've been trying to research, but... I've come up short, so I'm hoping that someone will hear this podcast and be able to give us some pointers. Yeah, it's really frustrating that we don't know where this magical giving stone really is. We know that it's probably in the Highlands, in an area that was Gaelic-speaking before the 1840s. And unfortunately, that gives us an absolutely massive (laughs) landmass. Like, pick a glen, any glen. (laughs) (laughs) And unfortunately, this practice in itself is extinct. Apparently, the practice of bringing offerings had been supported by the local clergymen for a very long time. You see, the clergymen approved and aided any merrymakings that brought charity to those who needed it. However, when he passed away and a new clergyman came in his place, this new man of the church denounced the old customs as a direct infringement of the second commandment. And unfortunately, he perceived it as worshipping some other saint or unknown god. And this sadly ended the custom of clach and groat completely, as folks wanted to be obedient to this new clergyman. But I really, really want to know where this stone is, Jenny, as I think (laughs) it's a really beautiful custom, and it's really tragic that we've lost it. 
I suppose the modern day equivalent of this, which is actually needed more than ever right now, is the food bank, which has become a real pillar of small towns, communities, and all the way through into the cities with this pandemic. So this Christmas, if you can, give a little to your local food bank and just yell about groats the whole time you're doing it. (laughs) That's my plan. (laughs) Take my beans and my groats. (laughs) (laughs) But it is a really heartwarming tradition. And I really like how these ancient druid stones still held some significance to the local people. Thousands of years after their initial use was forgotten, they were still understood to be special, but in a way that resonated with the traditions of the time. Plus, we learned about groats. And that's the real Christmas gift for us all, Jenny. (laughs) Santa's (laughs) groatso. So Jenny, a lot of the Scottish Christmas traditions of the past are those that we'd recognise nowadays. Yes, the classic Highland welcome of whiskey or good drink and then a day of feasting, sports and games finished with dancing, music and mirth. And don't forget your cheeky little kiss under the mistletoe. (laughs) Or if you don't have any mistletoe, any evergreen is a substitute as mistletoe isn't too common in Scotland. So go crawl under a holly bush and get all kissy. <laughs> Jenny! We also see Christmas games of Shinty mentioned in the archives, which I absolutely adore because Shinty is such an incredible sport. And of course, there's the infamous Kirkwall Bar game up in Orkney, where the whole town divides into two groups of uppies and doonies, depending on what side of the town they live on. So where's the divide, Jenny? How do we know who is an uppy and who is a doonie? Well, it all depends on which side of Kirkwall Town Gates you're born on. The uppies are born up the gate and the doonies are born down the gate. Do you get it? Complex, Jenny, but I I think I understand. Mm, well, although this ancient system of uppy-doonie division was put to the test by the Balfour Kirkwall Hospital being built, This meant that most babies were born on the uppy side, giving them an advantage. And so, the tradition became that you played as an uppy or doonie, depending on what your family played as. But what if I don't have any family in Kirkwall, Jenny? What do I do then? Well, then you have to live in Orkney to play bar, Annie, so that's how the custom goes. This is not a tourist game. They don't have insurance for that. (laughs) They don't have insurance, Phil. Stop, Jenny. (laughs) That's true. But if you do move to Orkney, then you either listen to your inner Viking spirit telling you which side to play on, or you ask the local sage of the game on which side you belong. It may be that the path you took when you first arrived in Kirkwall determines your place in the bar game. But Jenny, how do we actually play bar? Uh, well, so the rules are a little sketchy. But basically, a terrified ball is set loose amongst the townsfolk who must get it into the opposite side of the town's goal. It is a game of honour and bravery. They are essentially just pushing a ball from one side of the town to the other in huge crowds, each one trying to overpower the other. But it's been done since time immemorial. I've actually heard local lore that says the Kirkwall bar traditions goes way back to the Vikings, Jenny, but I'm not sure whether I believe it. Well, the Vikings did love Yuletide, 
And Ba is a game of true courage and strength, so I could see it. I also found a love letter for the Kirkwall Ba game in the Orkney Herald of 1926. Do you want to read it, Jenny? Yes, and I recently spent a few weeks in Orkney, so my accent is tippy-toppy. <laughs> <coughs> Bye. The origins of the game is uncertain, but it is supposed that when the Vikings returned to our Orcadian shores after their long and dangerous southern cruises many hundreds of years ago, they spent their short Yule vacation in friendly combats similar to the Kirkwall Bar. How is that? Pretty good, right? Straight off, straight off the boat. Wow. <laughs> straight off the ferry, Annie. <laughs> the letter was actually signed by A. Ferry Looper, which I think means someone just off the ferry. <laughs> <laughs> but I love the idea. People thought that Vikings would be spending their holidays playing bar. It just seems so wonderful. There have been several attempts to stop this old and fine game of bar, all of which, I am glad to say, have failed. The bar seems to rouse the whole population. It is the event of the year. It brings together people who have not met each other for a very long time. It ripens old friendships and recalls sweet memories. All Orcadians and lovers of Orkney look forward to the game. I hope that this fine annual game, played at Christmas and New Year, will continue to take place for many years to come. The Kirkwall Bar game has been cancelled this year, as would any event that has a few hundred people in a scrum, but it will return as soon as it's safe for folks to do so, or at least as safe as the bar game ever can be. <laughs> Christmas was not just a time for feasts and games. As we saw with the old groat stone, it was a time of giving, of helping those who had less and spreading the success and surplus of a community to those who had not been so fortunate. I found a wonderful oral history from Glen Morriston, which isn't too far from Inverness. In this small community, tucked away amongst the Highland Glens, there was a wee old woman and she'd seen better Christmases. She used to be quite the social butterfly in her younger days and would bring joy to all who she encountered on her trips from up in the glen down into the village. But over the years, as fortune turned against her, she became more and more isolated. She stayed up in her cottage and was rarely seen by the village folk until one Christmas when her situation became so dire that she had to come down from her village with her only pig in tow and quietly announce that she had to sell it. For it was her last possession worth anything and she needed the money to survive another year. Oh, that's really sad to sell a beloved pig. Yes, but the locals did as she asked and the pig was taken off her nobbled hands and led around town to see if anyone was looking to buy a pig. One young fellow, who was surprised to see that someone was auctioning a pig at this time of year, inquired about the seller. When he learned who it was, he remembered the merriment and warmth that the old lady had once exuded, and he grew sad to hear of her situation. And so, he bought the pig and paid a handsome price for it too. When the old lady came to receive her last pig's profit, she put it in her pocket with a tear in her eye. Grateful to have the means to survive, 
but sad to see her last pig go. As she turned to leave the village and head back up her glen, the young man who had purchased her pig was waiting for her. He said he would happily walk her and her pig home, for he gave her hog back to her and also let her keep the money he paid. He was happy to help a wee old lady out in the darkest time of the year and bring her some Christmas joy. This is such a beautiful story, Jenny. It's genuinely bringing a tear to my eye. But that might also <laughs> just be because 2020 has been a rough year. Do you need someone to buy your pig and give it back to you, Annie? <laughs> you know what, Jenny? I just want people to be buying each other pigs out in the world. I think that's what I that's want. That's true. <laughs> What's even more lovely, Annie, is that the old woman was so touched that she had the young man and all his family round for Christmas dinner. And her lonely glen was filled with life and laughter once more. So I'm imagining their Christmas dinner with the pig with a little party hat on sat at the table. <laughs> oh, I was imagining it on the table with an <laughs> apple in its mouth. <laughs> and that's why you're the one with the delicious ham and I'm the one with the mushroom wellington, Jenny. <laughs> but we see these tales of kindness and care percolate through the ages around this time of year. Be it called Yule, Christmas, or something else entirely. Winter is a time that was cold, wet, and dark. But when human kindness and empathy is what got folk through it, and is what really shines through in this season. And I think we can all apply this to what's going to get us through this year's incredibly tough Christmas. Kindness, empathy, and a vaccine. A vaccine and some good food. Amen to that, Jenny. (laughs) (laughs) So I searched for a happy Christmas poem to end our happy Christmas episode, but what I found is a slightly sad but very beautiful Christmas poem instead. Annie, I literally double underlined festive cheer when I was writing this episode. (laughs) How did you miss this? That was like the name of the episode. (laughs) (laughs) Well, if you remember back to our mermaid episode, I actually fell in love with this young and tragic Victorian Shetland poet. You did, yeah. And his name is Basil Ramsey Anderson, and he wrote this stunning poem. And as a festive treat, we're going to get Kyle to read it. That's right, Kyle, who occasionally sings and reads, and this year has gone through two incredibly complex brain surgeries, chemotherapy and radiotherapy in the midst of a pandemic like an absolute champion, and is now free from his brain cancer. Woo! A thousand groats to Kyle! Yes! All the groats for Kyle. Well done, you star. Now, come with us and be this incredibly sad Shetland poet. (laughs) Hello, everybody. It's Kyle Walker here. You may recognize this voice from previous episodes of Stories of Scotland. I've been in hospital for the last three and a half months, and I just want to say before I read this latest poem, how grateful I am to all of you who have sent in messages and just your messages of kindness over the last, especially over the last few months, it's been really, really necessary. It's been a rough year for all of us. Um, I'm really grateful that you take some time out of your own years to give me some support, which is really, really kind. And I'm sure Annie and Jenny would say the exact same thing if they were here, but they're not. And you guys are my favourites, so shh. Anyway, on with the poem. 
I'm going to be reading you old song today. Um, so let us get cracking on with it. I lulled my babyhood to sleep upon a rock-bound shore. And now, like music of the deep, it thrills me to the core. It breathes like odours from the sea that winds to faint-heart bore and brings with it the memory of the dear days of yore. Oh, sing again that song to me, and I will list it over its sweet and soothing melody I fain would hear once more. For I tonight am sorrowful, as never I've been before, and naught can soothe a troubled soul like the sweet songs of yore. The voices of departed friends that whisper now no more, the sighing of the plaintive winds, old ocean's measured roar, come back across the tide of time to banish sadder lore and cheer as bells at Christmas chime the happy sounds of yore. Thank you so much, and thank you so much for listening, and thank you so much for having me. It's so nice to be reading this for you, chaps. Thank you. Thanks for reading such a sad but lovely Christmas poem, Kyle. We're so glad that you are back, recovering, and able to be on our podcast. We are so happy, Kyle. And thanks to all of you at home for listening to Stories of Scotland throughout the year. All we want for Christmas is lovely reviews on whatever podcast platform you listen on. Go ahead, give us a wee groat. <laughs> it helps us grow this podcast into whatever strange mythological creature it is becoming. <laughs> also, if you happen to have an extra groat to spare, and only if you happen to have that extra groat to spare, you can also support us on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash stories of Scotland. But if you don't have the extra groats, don't worry about it. Just enjoy your Christmas. And a massive thank you to our new patrons, Adam, Cindy, and Victoria and Natalie Travis. Natalie Travis is 10 years old and wants to be a crofter in the Highlands with a cow. And honestly, I am fully encouraging this ambition as that's my dream too. I, <laughs> I really hope you get your cow, Natalie. Well, maybe not this Christmas, but one day, one day, you keep pushing that ambition. Yeah, it's going to be tough to get that one down the chimney. <laughs> <laughs> well, we wish you a very happy Yuletide wherever you are in the world. Merry Christmas and happy holidays, one and all. So in the Gaelic for Merry Christmas, we say, Nolak Kriel. All right, Annie, let's go. Nolak Kriel Agus Slangeva. Nolak Kriel Agus Slangeva. And a happy new groat. <laughs> Jenny, I really love groats. <laughs> I know I've said groats that before. Are great. But I just, I really, really want to know where the clack and groat is.